Welcome to the Spiral Lab, a video podcast and YouTube channel where we think a little too hard about art and divergent design. I'm Marta, and this week, Gray and I are talking about a couple of famous minimalists who recently claimed that cluttercore is a mental illness. We don't think it is, and we'll explain all the reasons why. Plus, I'll share a bit of what I've learned about the cluttercore aesthetic from its practitioners. If you'd like to see us and the things we're talking about, Head on over to the Spiral Lab YouTube channel to watch the video. Cluttercore is getting a lot of attention these days, but we didn't really know much about it until we saw this clip. This picture that you see on the screen right now mm. is a picture from Architectural Digest, and this new trend is called clutter core where it's taking all of the things that we're clinging to and now displaying it and being proud of the clinging this is not a design trend this is a mental illness that is disguised Hmm. as a design trend apparently a lot of other people saw that clip as well and these fellows got a fair amount of pushback and they decided to put out another clip doubling down hold up Your producer, Jess, here. And before we play you this clip, you need a little bit of background on these guys. This is Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, two childhood best friends turned white collar success stories who realized that old cliche about money not buying happiness. Actually true. So they quit their nice jobs, simplified their lives and started a blog in 2010 to monetize their minimalist gospel, which turned into a podcast and some books and a couple subpar Netflix documentaries. According to Reddit, they pretty much just say the same tired stuff about decluttering over and over again. So clutter core is a mental illness must have felt like spicy new material for the hungry content machine. Okay. Back to this clip they put out after getting a little rage engagement boost in the comments. Hoarding is a mental illness. Now, Mm. we can pretend that it's not. We can celebrate hoarding, but it's still a mental illness. So am I pulling punches? No, I'm not going to pull punches. Am I punching? Yes, I'm punching at consumerism. Mm. Consumerism is the ideology that buying things is going to make you a whole happy person. No, it's not. Our society has become pathological. Um, Yeah, they're so upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as you can imagine, pathologizing somebody else's design style sends up all kinds of red flags for me. When I saw this clip, I I just felt kind of outraged on behalf of young people who are into Cluttercore. And even though I didn't really know anything about Cluttercore, I decided that I had to go educate myself about it and see... um, like what I thought about this analysis of it in light of, I don't know, what it actually is. It immediately, to me, um, it feels like they're just like imposing their their personal values on, on this stuff and they clearly don't get it, um, which honestly makes sense because they're, they're very rich. They're making a lot of money off of this, so... <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely my sense, too, was that once I started to learn more about Cluttercore, it struck me that these guys actually don't know anything at all about Cluttercore, as far as I can tell. And they keep conflating it with all kinds of other things. Um, in the second video, they conflate cl- Cluttercore with hoarding, which is not at all what Cluttercore actually is. I think that they just got triggered by the word clutter because clutter is like being anti-clutter is so at the core of their whole minimalist. I was going to call it a philosophy. I'm, I'm not sure if it, it rises to the level of a philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does strike me that in Both of these clips and also in their Netflix documentary, which we watched and we'll talk about in a little bit, that um, that a lot of what they're doing is imposing their own taste, their own values, their own sensibilities on other people um, and then 
judging other people for not sharing those tastes and values and sensibilities. They're constantly saying things like, oh, I prefer things to be clutter free. It makes me feel so much calmer. And they say, we have to ask questions like, what's essential? What's necessary? What is adding value to my life? And yeah, and then the answer for them is always almost nothing, right? Like almost no objects are essential, necessary, or add value to their lives. And therefore, that must also be true for everybody else. The word clutter is being reclaimed in these situations, right? Because it has become this sort of like nasty, you know, bad word, um, especially for people like these guys. And you're right. I think they're triggered by it. Um, And they're, it's like, they're making it something that it's not right. And I think they keep saying that they're, you know, well, if a lot of stuff adds, you know, value to your life, then fine. But these people are hoarders. It's just so like, they're almost trying to, to give an inch, but then I guess someone reaches a a certain threshold and therefore they're, you know, uh, hoarders with a mental illness. Yeah, they they, like in the, I think it was in the podcast about um, Cluttercore, they specifically say, I don't want to judge anybody. And then literally 15 seconds later, like he hasn't even really taken a breath. He is ranting about how this is a mental illness masquerading as a design style. And that just... I don't know. Like when people say, I don't want to judge anybody, but, (laughs) and then they go on to do exactly that. That just sends a lot of red flags up for me. They're really petty, apparently. Like I was reading through some Reddit threads about them and like, uh, they will like apparently block people that like criticize them on social media. Um, And they like regularly bring up that they used to have six figure salaries and used to be sales managers. So it's just, it's just funny for them to be just so judgmental and then, you know, be really petty when people, uh, you know, criticize their design aesthetic. And, exactly, exactly. Their relationship to objects, which is that objects are meaningless, they hold no value intrinsically, they don't hold memories. That's fine. That's, that's actually, ironically, largely how I feel about objects. Like, I, I share that with them. But I also have like the empathetic imaginative capacity to understand that other people feel really differently. And I wanted to give just a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Marie Kondo, who I'm sure a lot of people think are completely in the camp of the minimalists, but who actually isn't a minimalist and says that herself. Um, She says, in fact, that we should surround ourselves with the objects we love um, and that joy is personal. Each individual's ideal life and space will look different from the next. If minimalism is a lifestyle that sparks joy for someone, I encourage that. In the same way, if someone has determined that many items in their life spark joy, that's okay too. That's that's right from Marie Kondo's... um, website. So to to the extent that people think that, oh, Marie Kondo is a minimalist, I think that, that we need to reclaim Marie Kondo because I actually kind of love her. Um, but what I wanted to say is that she talks a lot about how when you're sorting through your stuff and deciding what to discard and what to keep, you need to hold each object in your hand one at a time and decide if it sparks joy in your life. And if it does, you keep it. And if it doesn't, I think this is so interesting. What you're supposed to do is thank it. You're supposed to thank it for the role that it played in your life, um, the service that it gave you, and then you can pass it on to other people. And she says that the reason that you do that is because in her culture, objects have spirits, right? Objects aren't just empty vessels and meaningless in her culture. So, Basically, when they say that having a different sort of relationship to stuff than they have is pathological, they're pathologizing a whole other culture that has a very different relationship to stuff. And lots and lots and lots of cultures have different relationships to stuff than they do. I also think stuff gets a bad rap here. A lot of stuff 
there's many people behind it, right? Like um, right. artisans, like people who put a lot of thought and work into um, producing something. And it, it absolutely can have meaning, um, even if it isn't handed down from your, your grandma. If, if somebody spent the time to make it and there's right. labor put into it, like it does have meaning, um, you know, and if it makes you happy, it's great. I also wanted to talk a little bit about sensory styles, which is obviously, I think, something that maybe neurodivergent people who get pathologized all the time are a little bit more aware of than lots of neurotypical people are. I think that some people are sensory avoidant and some people are sensory seeking. And you can be both of those things based on different senses and even just different contexts. So like, for example, in my situation, I'm very visually sensory seeking, which means that if I'm in a space that is really stark and bare, it literally like sucks the life out of me. I guess not literally. It really just sucks the joy out of me. And I really need like lots of layers of visual stimulation. Whereas when it comes to sound and noises, I'm super sensory avoidant. And especially when there are layers of sounds, like when it's somebody's talking and the TV's on and there's like traffic noise from outside and the dogs are barking, like all of those layers just make me feel insane. Yeah. So I can imagine that maybe these guys feel that way about visual layers, but people who feel differently, who have a different sort of sensory style are not mentally ill. We're just different. And I know that that's true for this sort of these different sorts of sensory styles are really very idiosyncratic. And I wondered if like you had any thoughts about that uh, um, or examples from your own experience. Yeah, I, I would say I'm very similar to you. I, I love texture. So like different types of fabrics, um, I, I need to have different textures all around. Uh, it really bothers me to have like all the same exact thing. I'm not sure why I'm like that with clothing, with, you know, interiors and stuff like that. So yeah, I like having that like sensory to, I think it's both visual and touch, like when it comes to texture. Mm. Um, but like, I'm also a person that like, if the lights are too bright at night and we're watching TV, like I have to turn them down so I can hear the TV. You know what I mean? Like, it's too bright. I can't hear. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's another way that I'm actually sensory avoidant as well Is like the lights have to be exactly right yeah. for sure. But if, if you, if I walk into a room that's just all clean surfaces without any objects, without any decoration, without any story to them, I just feel like so, so anxious and so uncomfortable in exactly the same way that these minimalists talk about how clutter makes them feel. So again, you know, they're not acknowledging that people are different and have different sensory styles and one is not pathological versus the other. It's just different. Um, yeah. and again, and another example of how they're, pathologizing people. And I think that this is probably, I don't know for sure. And I don't want to like do any armchair psychologizing, but it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of these kids who have really embraced clutter core are autistic <laughs> because autistic people, I mean, everybody has special interests, but I think that it's something that's especially true of autistic people. And often our special interests involve collecting things and wanting to display the things that we collect, right? And um, and I, I mean, obviously, I don't think that being autistic is pathological. And I don't think that people's special interests, whether you're autistic or not, whether it involves collecting or not, um, is pathological. Yeah, I 100% agree. I I see people who collect things and it's like, I'm, I'm only interested. Like it's, it's an outward expression of their personality, right? It, it tells you a lot exactly. about them. Um, but it's also great because they can tell you a lot about what they're interested in and, and you learn something like it, it only feels good to me. And I think there's, there's a major difference in collecting stuff that you love and you're interested in and maybe having a lot of it and like 
like literally having trash on the floor, right? Like there's a difference there. Right. Um that they're not talking right. about and exactly. Like these people are not hoarding, they're collecting. And they they they're constantly conflating things like that. Like hoarding is one thing, which we could have a conversation about whether hoarding is a mental illness or not, but it is different from collecting things. And I think that a lot of these, as I've discovered from watching a lot of videos about Cluttercore um, and looking at a lot of images on Instagram about Cluttercore, one of the things that it's clear to me is that it has a really strong relationship to vintage, to a, like a sort of interest in, a special interest in all things vintage. And I think that even just vintage shopping itself um, can be a special interest, right? And Absolutely. it's not, it's not a mental illness. It's a special interest, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then similarly, um, I guess this sort of goes to what I was talking about in terms of um, our sensory s styles, like aesthetics are also incredibly personal and individual. Um, and so, for example, I don't know if you remember in that documentary that they have, which I think is called... Um, less is now. But in this documentary, I was just real, I just really noticed the contrast between two rooms um, that appeared in the documentary. One is the background for this, for one of the fellas, I don't remember his name, um, who is sort of talking to the camera about his experience of finding like release and happiness and contentment through minimalism. The room in the back of him is almost all stark white to the extent that they've even put white paper over the books, which just like, like stabbed me in the heart <laughs> that you're going to so have exciting. a bookshelf full of books that you can't see the, the titles and you can't see the names of the authors like that was just really upsetting to me. And everything about that room was really upsetting to me. It just like gave me the heebie-jeebies. And then a little bit later in the video um, or in the documentary, the other guy is, this was all sort of a dramatization, but he supposedly is going into the home of his mother who has just passed away and he has to pack up all of her stuff. And I think that we're meant to sort of gasp as he walks into this space and think, oh my God, look at all that stuff. It's so awful. And I was expecting it to look like a sort of classic hoarder's home. Yeah. But what actually happened when he, like, again, it's all a dramatization. When he walks into this space, I was like, I felt my shoulders go down. And I think I literally sighed out loud. And I was like, oh my God, finally a real room that is like a home where real people live and the camera's panning around as he's describing how awful it is that his mother has all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's really lovely. I love what she's done with the end table there. That's such a pretty vignette on the top of that bureau, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I felt the same way. That, that was the first room where I was like, this is nice. You know, this is like, it's it's nice and tidy like it has uh you know visual interest like <laughs> it was like yeah um completely opposite of what he was describing to me um yeah. just looked like your aunt's house you know it was like uh you know there was stuff in it of course but you could tell it was lived in and a, and a right. real person lived there not you know a a rich guy <laughs> that just like <laughs> can afford to outsource everything um right yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to do the same thing that they are doing, which is to yeah. sort of pathologize their values and their aesthetic and their sensory sensibilities. Um, I'm just like thrilled to death for them that they have found such a deep happiness in jettisoning, jettisoning most of their stuff and embracing this like totally monochromatic design style. Like, I don't really want to go visit them in their homes. Like, let's go to a coffee shop because at least in a coffee shop, there's like stuff around <laughs> and I won't feel like all creeped out. But if that's what works for them, that's fantastic. But to me, it's just not okay 
to suppose that that experience and that relationship to stuff is universal and that anything that is different than that specific experience and that specific relationship must by definition be pathological. Um, that's just really not okay to me. And, and, you know, in that video, he talks about in the second clip, he talks about how, yeah, I am going to punch. And well, first of all, like what's with the violent imagery? Like yeah, we don't, punching? nobody needs, nobody needs Who to punches? be punching anybody and I'm not punching you. What are their names? I want to talk directly to them. Josh and Ryan, I'm not punching you. I don't want to punch you. I just want, um, you to know that I don't think it's okay for you to punch anybody, but especially it seems to me that in the case of clutter course specifically, they're really punching down the people who it seems to me embrace this aesthetic and are practitioners of it. They're predominantly young people. They're predominantly people who are just starting out in their own homes and just figuring out what their style is and what their aesthetic is and what they love. And most of them, as far as I can tell, are just incredibly happy with this style and it gives them a lot of joy. And like, I think it's a really Gen Z phenomenon, this clutter core. I think I could be wrong about that. But it just seems to me like I have Gen Z, a Gen Z kid, and like these kids have been through so much, right? They've been through so much through the pandemic. Like it's just economic hard times, like being pathologized, like all over the place and shamed. Like this is a generation that has just been pathologized and shamed and they do not need to be punched. And they certainly don't need to be punched down at by a couple of rich white guys, you know, yeah. who are, who are being judgmental and righteous regardless of what it is that they say they're doing. Um, so, so I like, obviously I, f I feel some sort of way about all of this. <laughs> <laughs> What they neglect to talk about is that these, you're absolutely right. It's, it's mostly Gen Z. These, you know, young people haven't had the ability to go out and experience life. Like I'm sure he has, right. Uh, at least for a significant amount of their time for a, a very um, pivotal part of their life. And they're not, they're not being able to be simulated by their outside environment. So they're bringing it in. And in many ways, like it's the only way, it's the only option that they have is to collect, um, you know, things and, and make their space different. They can't make changes on a grand scale. Um, they're probably renting or living at their parents' house. And so, right. yeah, they're completely out of touch and that'll become more and more apparent, right? Like it's, it's very clear that these ideas are, are, are no longer as popular as they once were, um, and they are speaking to a, a very specific demographic because uh, you can see the minimalists right are. Yeah. 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 It's really clear to me that Joshua and Ryan didn't actually do any investigation into what Cluttercore actually is on its own terms. Oh, hi. Me again. That is a little bit of an understatement because the amount of research they didn't do is actually hilarious. In their Cluttercore rant, they cited this Architectural Digest article from last year called Is Cluttercore the Chaotic Good We Need Right Now? And being a curious person, I was like, who is that in this picture? Her name is Gia. She's an art director. And these photos were actually repurposed from a profile that Architectural Digest did on her in 2019. If you read that profile, the writer adds color by describing how they stage these photos which means Josh and Ryan are mad about a photo shoot. She doesn't keep shoes on her bed. Toward the end of the profile, Gia explains how she keeps her collection sustainable. If something new comes in, something old must go out, either through donations or friends. It has taught me to collect with more education and less blindly. And she also has some advice for us. Don't ever let anyone tell you to stop collecting. It is my legacy and everyone deserves one of their own. Okay. I'll give you back to Marta for some more critique. 
And they literally in that in that podcast on Cluttercore accused these kids of what they called a classic American flex. What they mean, I think, is like a classic way that Americans use stuff and wealth and fancy cars and all of that kind of stuff as a way of like flexing their worth and their status. And I just kind of had to laugh out loud <laughs> because these kids are like the opposite. These kids are like the opposite of that flex. These kids are not cluttering their houses or flexing their wealth with collections of like Rolex watches or Gucci handbags or Jimmy Choo shoes. Like that is not what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. It, I would have been fine listening to a good majority of their argument if they were like speaking about MTV Cribs videos, right? I don't right. know if that will translate <laughs> to everyone, but rich people showing off their houses, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and I could I could get behind it, but yeah, I mean, just incredibly, incredibly out of touch. Um, yeah, and they keep using you know consumerism, materialism, um, and they aren't just meaning rich people. They're they're meaning everyone, and uh, right. They're they're using these terms that that really put the burden on the individual. Um, exactly. And when, you know, on top of that, they're showing off, you know, these spaces from these young people and, and this is what they have, you know, to show the world. It's just, yeah, it's beyond frustrating. So. Right. And they like obviously cherry picked photographs that they thought kind of made their argument for them without, like I said, going and watching some of the videos that I watched. And I just wanted to, um, give a few examples of actual young people um, who embrace cluttercore as an aesthetic that are the exact opposite of what they're talking about. Um, for example, there was this young woman named Laura. This woman was so happy and joyful with her cluttercore aesthetic. And she's in a tiny one bedroom apartment. Um, and she talks about her family all the time. She points to like wall hangings that her brother's girlfriend made her. And she talks about her sister bringing over plant cuttings. She collects plants. Her apartment is just full of sunlight and plants. Um, and also she loves like flowers and floral motifs. And her mother had bought her a, a rack for hanging her ro robes over the back of her um, bathroom door and a little mirror. And she was talking about how her mother had bought this stuff. And it was like such an indication of how much her mother understands her and knows her and loves her. Like, I think that this is her second apartment. She moved into this one bedroom apartment from a tiny studio apartment. And she is so happy in this space. It's just everything. I mean, I can't get over it. I just love it so much. Um, I honestly don't feel like I'm ever going to move. Like I don't like, there's no reason to me ever, ever to move. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy to be here. You know, that's all I got to say. And I just thought, this is not somebody who is flexing her wealth. Um, this is just a lovely young person. There's another woman named Catherine Young, and her that's the name of her YouTube channel, um, who, who talks about, I just thought that this was so um, lovely. She talks about how Cluttercore um, sort of felt like coming home to her. I was very much a Rolling Stone for the past 15 years. And so buying stuff just didn't make sense because I'd always have to move and I'd have to move the items. It's only been recently that I've been more stable in where I'm living that I've been picking up, collecting more, picking up more things for that clutter core aesthetic. Um, and now I am absolutely sure I'm a maximalist. I love collecting. I love vintage. I just can't get enough. And in fact, there's a one video where she talks about how 90% of her the stuff in her apartment has been thrifted and the two most expensive items in her apartment cost her $150. She has really carefully curated what she calls vignettes, you know, like the 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 top of a bookcase or um 
this end table and she's really thoughtfully and using principles of design. She's a designer created these little vignettes that she loves. It doesn't matter whether it's my taste or not. She loves it. And what's most important, it seems to me, is that it's precisely her ability to go thrifting, to go vintage shopping, and to create and design these vignettes in her home that has given her a sense of home, of being home, of having a home, and the security that goes with that. One of the things that the minimalists insist on is that objects don't hold memories. I'm not encouraging you to purge everything, but I'm saying that you can purge everything and you'll still be okay because you are not in those objects. Your memories are not in those objects. Your family, not in those objects. The sentiment is not even in the sentimental object. Yeah. There's almost nothing in my life that's stuff that if I lost it or got rid of it would just devastate me. But that's not true for so many people. And to insist that that experience, that that relationship of to stuff and, and the way that stuff does or doesn't hold memories is universal is just like, like, again, I don't want to pathologize these guys, but it did seem to me that if there's any pathology going on here, <laughs> it's like a lack of imaginative empathy and an inability to like understand that other people can actually have different experiences than you do. And I thought that this was really driven home by another video that I saw, which interestingly is by a minimalist. So I thought that it was a, um, really a really useful rebuttal to their argument. This is by a woman whose YouTube channel is called A to Zen Life. Um, and her, her video is called The Dark Side of Minimalism, which I just thought props to her, kudos to her for like being willing to acknowledge that is not like... Like these guys have such evangelical zeal about th their conversion to minimalism that there's no space for any kind of critique or any possibility that there's an underside to it. Um, but this woman did. And one of the examples that she gave was of um, a woman who had lost her father and was like so stricken with grief and had been convinced by this whole minimalist movement, that the way to happiness was to get rid of everything. I was devoid of favorite books to escape into, old gifts to comfort me with love from my past, vacation tchotchkes to remind me of the beauty I'd seen, greeting cards with cheesy sentiments I needed to hear now, lace doilies from my dead grandmother crocheted for me that I could touch and feel her DNA, and most importantly, anything from my dad. All because one Sunday, in a thick fog of grief, desperation for a different life, and after drinking too much cheap red wine, none of what I owned sparked joy, but rather sadness. So I Marie Kondoed it all away, completely disregarding that despite these things not necessarily sparking joy, they might spark comfort, security, and coziness when I needed them. It's just not true that that our our memories aren't held in stuff. For many people, they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I took particular offense to it. Um, I definitely have things from, you know, people who have passed in my life and they, I, they hold a lot of meaning for me. I would not want to let them go, but I also have a terrible memory. So, um, right. So like in, in some ways holding on to something is just a way for me to go back and, and, you know, remind myself of, of something that was nice in my life. Um, I, I really truly cannot remember some things and uh, something in front of me that reminds me of it every day, uh, you know, really makes me happy and, and fulfills me. So, um, you know, even if it doesn't hold a ton of meaning, if it wasn't from someone, you know, like that has passed, it still, it still can do something for you. And it, it just kind of depends on the person that you are and, and how you um, recall things. So that's so interesting, Gray, because I hadn't really thought about that at all. But that's just such a great point. And it's reminding me that I think stuff does that less for me. I think that that stuff for me is more like art. It's like a, it's something that um, that I find 
like the stuff that I want to have around me is stuff that I find really aesthetically pleasing. Maybe books. Maybe books are the like collection that I have that serves that purpose. But for me, smells and um, certain songs, and I think this is true for lots of people, just take us right back, right? Like I ha- my mother was from Amsterdam and her cousin, who I visited quite a number of times before she passed, wore um, opium perfume. And, and I actually, like it's one of the perfumes, I don't wear perfume very often. So many people are sensitive to it. But when I do wear perfume, it's, one, it's opium. Um, partly because when I smell it, it takes me right back to Amsterdam and to Ali, my mother's cousin. And, and I can see now that like objects could serve the same purpose, right? Like they could transport you in the same way that a smell or a song can transport you back to a time. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Like it's just so absurd to say yeah. that objects don't hold memories just because yeah. they don't hold memories for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, their – evangelical zeal because in their in their documentary there there are points where they're literally giving a sermon like it it, their cadence and you know the way that they're speaking reminds me very much of a you know pastor at a, a major like televised church right but of course most of us aren't hoarders right no We just hold on to a lot of stuff. We hold on to a lifetime of collected memories. I know mom certainly did, and I had no idea what to do with any of it. He's not actually talking even to the camera. It's like this weird thing where he's talking to somebody off camera. I don't know. It was very weird, but it did have sort of like um, youth pastor testifying kind of vibes going. Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things. So we can make room for life's most important things which actually aren't things at all. And then a few other people said things that made me like think that there was some political subtext <laughs> to, to all of this, which they were sort of carefully tiptoeing around. But I always like to go and Google the people who, they, who people interview. Whenever I watch a d- documentary, I just want to know a little bit about the context. Like, where are they coming from? What are their politics? Um, what are their values? Like, I just think that that stuff matters. So I Googled all of the people who they interview in that um, documentary on Netflix. And there was one person who she's the, I think she's the executive director of Greenpeace. And she actually does a sort of tries to do this critique of capitalism, um, you know, in the context of their, critique of materialism and consumerism but like she keeps like trying to make that critique and then all of these other people like cut in and say things like oh but it's not really markets that are bad it's not really um selling stuff that's bad um you know and i was like what's going on with this who are these people and it turns out that one of them is uh, the director of education for a really conservative libertarian um, pro-market think tank. And all of the rest of them are like really conservative evangelical Christians who not coincidentally, I mean, it's not really related to this, but was creeping me out are all really homophobic and like, don't let gay people either be part of their churches or serve in leadership roles and I was just like, okay, that tells me a lot. Um, to me, that matters. Like, I think that it gives you sort of a political subtext. And then I thought that that started to sort of explain why they just kept tiptoeing up to this critique of capitalism, but never really following through. Yeah. Well, they have to tiptoe up to it because uh, if they didn't, you know, if they didn't go in the direction that they are going, um, they would have to be criticizing themselves, right? Uh, they, they, again, use the words consumerism, materialism, and I really hate those words because they're so loaded. Um, they give this you know, perfect way of uh, 
talking about the you know terrible things we experience under capitalism um but make the problem not capitalism it's it's the individuals right it's it's our personal choice to buy something and not this you know um insidious advertising and you know these companies that have run our world for decades uh you know shoveling it <laughs> towards right. us so um yeah, they're they're really uh, conflating these things, and it is. I think it's really interesting because you you pointed this out. Um, this this spokesperson from Greenpeace is talking and you know um, criticizing capitalism, and they plot this guy from this libertarian think tank in and immediately deflect from that, right? And that's it's classic. It's it's um, it's used all the time because people do experience pain from capitalism. And, you know, very easy to make that, uh, um, I guess, to speak to that, those, those pains, but then make the enemy something else, right? It's, it's the responsibility right. of the individual. And you can go to that website and it is pretty explicit, um, you know, how much they are saying this is an individual problem and you can change the world. Um, you know, I think they say something like, it's not going to be a top-down approach. You have to, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, do this grassroots yeah. movement yourself. Anyway, um, it's, yeah, it, it's so upsetting. And the other thing is that they neglect to ever talk about is that uh, the ability to not make money and material objects a central point in your life is absolutely not available to a large majority of working class people. Right. Right. Um, you have to be thinking about that stuff all of the time. So they really can only speak to people who uh, are already coming from a place of privilege where they have enough stuff to, you know, survive very comfortably and then can start to tear down. Um, yeah. I, um, I think that you're so right that, that what they've done is made the problem be an individual problem of consumerism and materialism as opposed to offering a structural critique of capitalism. And then in addition to that, um, just sort of as a bookend, they offer minimalism as an individual solution to that problem. Um, and, you know, there, there can't be collective or political solutions to the problems of capitalism. Um, minimalism is the thing that's going to save us. And it was really interesting to me, to your point about privilege, that at the beginning of that documentary, they talk about how they grew up poor um, and that they, they actually say that, that minimalism is about the careful stewarding of resources and that maybe if they had just had this philosophy of minimalism when they were poor, then their poverty wouldn't have been so acute. So basically what they're saying is that, um, I mean, it's just classic, classic, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, um, libertarian economic dogma, right? That, that, the, that the problems of poverty are individual problems and that the solutions to poverty are individual solutions and there's no structural analysis on either end about the problem or about the potential solutions. Yeah, and the hypocrisy is just disturbing to me, right? Uh, on, on one side, you have two people who are entirely against consumerism, I guess, but here, consume my documentary, you know, that I made a bunch of money on through Netflix, buy my book, um, you know, there's, there's that part of it, but... Um, they never talk about the fact that our, our world has really changed, um, you know, from the time of, uh, I think Joshua talking about his, his mother's house, right? Like there are, we have so many more options to consume things, uh, than we once had. And, um, you know, minimalist consuming less or, you know, buying different things. It's, it's still consumerism under capitalism. It's just behind a veil, right? Like, you think about travel, um, you know, experiences, virtual services, club memberships. Those are all things that have incredible costs and not only, you know, financially, but 
uh, it was regard to sustainability too, um, right. which is something that they, I don't, I don't know if they talk about uh, in these particular instances, but they talk about. Um, and so all of these things have significant costs and uh, the cost of what is in these people's homes that they're criticizing pales in comparison to, you know, the, the actual cost and the, um, the environmental costs of what they are doing on a daily basis. So I just, on top of everything else, it's just incredibly hypocritical. Yeah. Companies are, are co-opting minimalism because they can make a lot of money through services, right? So if you don't have the things to do what you need to do, you have to go and rent it um, or experience it through uh, an organization that is making a profit off of you um, using it or experiencing it, right? And you see a lot of these like major companies that traditionally uh, made money off of goods and, and like manufacturing goods. And they're realizing there's like a much bigger profit margin uh, off of services. You don't have the same amount of overhead. And so they're leaning heavily into, into services. So the minimalist aesthetic, especially how, you know, these guys frame it uh, is, is really seductive to companies that can make a lot of money off of you not owning something and having to rely on them to provide it for you. Um, and you have to purchase that at a premium instead of, you know, it sitting in your home and its value being, you know, what it can do for you, whatever object it is, it now, its value is now whatever that company can make profit off of, um, using it for. So, and added to that is the fact that the people who are now doing the things that you used to do, and I'm not opposed to outsourcing at all, but I know that those companies that you're describing are paying the smallest amount that they can to the laborers who are now doing the things that you used to do with the stuff that you no longer have. <laughs> and, um, and those laborers are making so little money that there was one point in the documentary where one of them said that when he got laid off from his six-figure corporate sal job, that it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him. And that struck me as an example of just how completely clueless and out of touch these guys are. Because for most working class people, most of the blue collar laborers who are now doing the work, like I said, that they no longer do because they no longer have the stuff to do it with. And now they have, they pay somebody else to do it for them. Um, those people like if they got laid off from their jobs, it would not be the best thing that ever happened to them. And then one of the one of the evangelical Christian guys in the documentary said, "Well, that's why you need to um, be frugal and save your money and create a financial buffer around yourself, so that when you know you need to say take this job and shove it, you can do that because you will have." Like, again, of your own individual will and hard work created this financial buffer around yourself, which is, again, just like ridiculously out of touch with the economic circumstances of the vast majority of people in the world under capitalism. They're not going to minimalize, they're not going to mi minimalism their way out of poverty, out of their working class circumstances out of the financial precarity in which they live. Um, and it's just offensive to suggest that that's the solution. So Gray, we've talked about a lot of problems with these minimalists takedown supposedly of ClutterCore and why we disagree with them that ClutterCore, we think that ClutterCore is not a mental illness. And in fact, I feel like I want to kind of end on a high note of celebrating ClutterCore because even though it's not exactly my aesthetic, like I realize, I'm realizing that my aesthetic is way closer to ClutterCore um, as a maximalist than it is to these um, minimalists. And so I just wondered, what have you come to understand about ClutterCore and what do you love about it? 
Uh, well, I'm I'm going a step further. I'm fully embracing cluttercore. I'm we're gonna have a, a whole hallway just full of like bird cross stitches. I'm very excited about it. Um, what I like about it is it's just a it's free license to find something that you like, either something that you already have or something you find at a thrift store, and just put it up because it makes you happy and it doesn't have to exactly go with everything else. Um, but as long as you're embracing the things that make you happy and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, I guess, get in your way, then, you know, put it up. I think it's great. Exactly. I agree. And, um, again, one of the things that struck me so much when I was watching these videos about Cluttercore was just how happy it made people, um, and how, what really moved me especially was the sense of home that it gave people, because I think that that's so important that, that like our inner contentment, our mental health, in fact, is so dependent on having a safe and secure and beautiful sense of home. And um, the objects that, that some of these clutter core spaces are filled with are not necessarily the objects that bring me um, like beauty and contentment and joy, but it's so obvious that they are bringing these mostly young people just that like contentment and joy and a sense of safety and home. And I know that for so many young people right now, that's really in short supply. Like young people have been through a lot and I just really want to say to young people out there and practitioners of Cluttercore that you are doing everything exactly right. And you go with whatever makes you happy. And I'm just here to completely cheer you on. I think that your design style is not a mental illness and nobody should ever punch you for it or shame you for it. And in fact, it's beautiful and a, just a really lovely aesthetic. And it is, in fact, design. And congratulations for finding something that really works for you. This has been The Spiral Lab. This episode was produced and edited by Jesse Meadows. Don't forget that this is a video podcast, so head on over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. If you enjoyed today's conversation, leave us a five-star review and share this episode with your friends. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can send us an email at enterthespirallab at gmail.com. You can find me on Substack, where I write about design and disability justice at divergentdesign.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.